As we come to the final episode of season two of Who Let the Dogma Out, we find the church at a pivotal time. We find a church at a time in which megachurch era ended, the emerging church era ended. What will the next era be is a question before us today. We find us in ourselves in a time where we're more culturally irrelevant than perhaps at any point in American history. The church has no impact whatsoever on culture and the slide that it's undergoing. We find ourselves entering generation number three of losing the majority of our own youth who were born and raised in the church. Times are dire. The church has to make some key decisions. And the question stands before us, what is next? As we enter into this time of, of America, what seems to be America's decline, what will the church do? What will the church look like? How will the church restore its influence in the world? How will it restore its conversion of its own people and retention of our youth? How will it re-evangelize a culture that has turned away from God? What will be done? For this final episode, we want to talk about dividing lines in today's Christianity. We want to talk about what we're calling make or break decisions that will determine exactly what will come of the future of the church here in America. Lord willing, if we're given the years, we think if we get these make or break decisions right, we can see the church return to a place of strength. But we have to do it God's way. We have to make the decisions that haven't been made for so long that are staring us in the, in the face at this crucial turning point. Welcome to Who Let the Dogma Out, where doctrine has dominion over all of life. I'm joined once again by Titus Anderson and Daniel Mayfield, and kind of crazy that we've gotten through 12 already. As I said last week, we will not take the eight-month break that we did last time before we get back at it, but we all do need a bit of a break, and so uh, how are you guys doing? Doing great, doing great. As you, uh, those who are watching the video can see, I've constructed a new podcast studio uh, since the last episode, uh, just kind of put some of these fake books behind me. Um, no broadcast <laughs> cardboard boxes. Yeah, they're not. None of those are real. Um, but anyhow, yeah, I'm I'm excited for the season finale. I'm wondering what our big cliffhanger is going to be for this season. You know, what kind mm -hmm. of shocking revelations are going to be made in, in this season finale? It's got to be a big one. My initials are JR. I just hope nobody shoots me. <laughs> uh, some people get that reference. Some will not. I didn't see that show. I just know it's a big cultural hey. reference. Jack, how well, old are you? Yeah, I know that that, that <laughs> had to be before I was born. But uh, yeah. sorry, we just made some of the listeners feel really old because they probably remember watching it live. But I don't know. Daniel, what about you? Doing all right? Yeah, yeah. Doing solid. Doing solid. Just uh, as we were talking about before, just uh, accidentally breaking things at my house and then having to uh, to fix them. I find that a lot of my projects are self-created. Uh, you know, you, I go in to fix something and make something worse, and then uh, I get to spend a lot of time fixing it. So that's that's what I've been doing. It's a good way to learn new skills. Just oh, put yourself to is. work. It is. I'm, I'm putting myself through trade school, basically. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, as I said, Make or Break Issues is the title of this episode. We took a little time figuring out what we wanted to do to end the season off, and I think this is a good good point to do so. Uh We've, we've touched on all of these things lightly in passing as we touched on other subjects a little bit more specifically, but we really are at this point where the church has to decide what are we going to do about the things that we're about to talk about, uh, about these issues that are staring us in the face. Some of them I think we realize are staring us in the face. We're going to talk about sexuality and LGBT issues and, and things like that, but I don't think 
I, I think there are other more underlying issues as well. We talk a lot about theological minimalism. Where that starts is with an understanding of God's holiness. So that's going to be number one on our list of make or break decisions for the church. Are we going to emphasize and understand and appreciate God's holiness? Why have we not? Or I guess I should say, how have we not? Where are we at a point where, where we've lost that? What are some signs people might recognize? I think culturally, this is something that at one point in time was baked in. Um, you hear people talk about this idea that, you know, maybe in the 50s or 60s, I don't know, whatever idyllic time period you want to think of that. Say you have like a, a storefront and you have six biker dudes hanging out front and they're, you know, they're cursing up a storm. They're they're telling, you know, depraved jokes. And then when an old lady walks by, you know, what do they do? Uh, they stop talking like that. Or when, you know, ba basically this idea that, hey, when somebody of, of respect or uh, somebody that's respectable comes near me, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to change my actions. And culturally, again, not saying people were perfect back then, but there was an understanding that uh, there, there's a separation of crassness and sin versus you know, respectable, holy living, if you will. And so I think we've lost that completely culturally. And that kind of shift has happened in the church, but it's not just with, you know, little old ladies or, you know, an elderly gentleman that walks by and we don't really have that ingrained respect. Uh, it's disseminated well all the way up to God. And, um, you know, we, we aren't Catholics. We don't have the traditional Latin mass. We don't wear robes or vestitures or things like that. Um, you know, at least at my congregation, we're not quite to the come as you are and and shorts and and flip flops. But at the same time, looking at you know the traditional service in a church, uh, it, it can be kind of laid back. And because of that, maybe not just solely because of it, I think we we get comfortable in a way that the Bible's portrayal of God's holiness doesn't really show. Um, again, that level of you know I can just come in, kind of hang out, and maybe I'll sing a few songs. Um, I think just pragmatically, our our thoughts as we come to worship, our thoughts as we think about Christianity in general have really um, underplayed God's holiness. Yeah, I, th I think we don't like the idea of a holy God, which we're, see we're seeing a shift happening, but we've not liked the idea of a holy God because a holy God demands a holy people. You, therefore, must be holy as I am holy. And if God, if, you know, if God is um, uh, apathetic toward our sin, if God's standards are really low, if God, if God says over every single sin that we do, oh, oh, you're just human, you're just human, then what that does is it allows us to carry on in sort of this nonchalant, apathetic way. But really the, you know, the, the spirit of the Christian age right now is very tepid. We're, uh, we're lukewarm. I mean, we're Jesus. If he hasn't already, he's he's fixing to spit us out of his mouth. And uh, what we're going to need to do, uh, you know, I, I think you you spoke to the uh, the symptoms really clearly there, uh, Titus, about, you know, we've just the idea of, you know, certain things being out of place Um that's certainly the issue, but what, what we're going to need to do is reestablish the picture of Jesus on the throne with eyes aflame, a sword coming out of his mouth, and a voice like many waters. You know, I see that and I think, oh man, okay, I'm not, this is not just 
you know, some this soft spoken um, uh, Jewish man that the chosen is portraying. No, he he's the living God on a throne, and that changes how I approach him. For sure, you think about and and Titus, you're getting at this a little bit with the the dress thing. We're such a casual society, and you think about how many things do we really hold in awe. We really, you know, the the heroes that we have, the the places, the things like that, where it's just kind of like that's special, that's set apart, that's different. We don't really have anything like that anymore. Everything's casual. Everything's brought down. We've talked before about like uh, even in movies and TV, the good guys aren't really that good. There's there's no, you know, wow, Superman, man, he's amazing. No, he's just one of us. He's has the same struggles we do. He's and you think um, the the TV commercials that were real big earlier this year, he gets us. You know, God's just like us. No, he's not. He's not like us at all. He he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Absolutely. He's not like us. He doesn't get us in that same way. He doesn't have the weaknesses we have. And and anything that you can look at is just like, wow, this is this perfect standard. No, we have such a mindset to tear down accomplishment, to tear down better, to tear down, uh, to bring everything down to the same level. Nothing's better than anything else. Well, God's better than us. That's that's what it means that he's holy. We don't really even know what it means that he's holy. We sing holy, holy, holy. I don't think a lot of people have a concept of it. It's that he's better than us in every way, in untouchable ways. He dwells in unapproachable art or, un, you know, uh, he, he's, he's so far above us, you know, as the, the stars are above the I'm, I'm butchering like five different Bible verses in the same <laughs> quote here. You guys know what I'm referencing, but uh, yeah, he's better than us. That, it's as simple as that. Yeah. yeah. As, as you're speaking, you know, I want to put one point of clarity. The, so he understand, you know, we had the, 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 the lesson on the, the dual nature of Jesus. He understands us, mm-hmm. but when he, but in his understanding of us, he's calling us out of it. He's calling us away from it. He's calling us to holiness, right? Jesus, you know, when he went to the sinners, they loved him. They loved being around him and he loved them. And he, he could, un- he understood their struggles, but he said, you know, uh, go and send no more, uh, you know, the physician, um, you know, a person who's totally well, doesn't need a physician. He came to call us out of these things that, you know, we're just okay with any, any view. And I think we're going to hit this a couple of times as we go through this episode. Um, as we say this, I don't think any of us want to give the impression that, God, I'm telling you, his standard of grace, you know, if he's going to give you grace, his standard is just higher than we've taught. I mean, God's God is gracious. He's outpouring in grace. Uh, he welcomes sinners. He loves sinners. But any kind of frame of mindset that <laughs> makes sin not that big of a deal and says, well, the sin, you know, you're a sinner, but we're all sinners. Sin's just not that big of a deal. That's going to be a fallacious mindset any way you look at it. It's, if we're going to feel comfort, it's got to be in making God's grace bigger and God's loving kindness bigger, not basically comforting ourselves and saying, you know, well, my sin's just not that big of a deal. My sin does, just doesn't matter that much to God. And I think you know, as we're talking about this, it's kind of coming to mind, God's holiness. It's hard when we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have, you know, a pillar of fire. We don't have this big ornate kind of, again, say what you will about the Catholic church, stand in front of or inside of a cathedral. And all of a sudden this religion feels big and bigger than you. And, you know, something kind of unattainable. We don't have that. We don't have the old Testament 
Testament, you know, iconography, if you will. will. Um, but I still think we have to, in our own way, reach for that holiness. And w- one way that it shows out to me um, in worship service, I-, I lead singing almost every Sunday. Um, and this is just me kind of speaking my struggles out loud here. Sometimes there's opportunities depending on the announcement that was made before or something that's going on in my life or something that happened, you know, kind of these faux pas that happen in the middle of the service, a baby screams or something. There's an opportunity to kind of make a light comment or something funny that, you know, is going to get a laugh out of the congregation. And I've, I've done that before. You know, I've done it kind of in the moment. And I, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with making a comment or being, you know, adding lightheartedness to a sermon or whatever, but there are moments where I go, if I do this, what am I going to be drawing the attention to? Am I drawing the attention to myself, how funny I am? Cause I am very, very funny. Um, you know, and, and basically making people laugh at me and going like, I'm in the presence and worshiping a holy God right now. It's not lighthearted as far as me coming to him. He's the focus. And I think it's the same thing I've also noticed. Um, with baptisms, you know, baptism is a wonderful, miraculous thing. God is, you know, ushering people into uh, his church. I've been backstage at some baptism prep where people are getting ready and people seem uncomfortable to even be talking like really in a spiritual way. They're making jokes about all oh, these waiters I'm wearing, man, I think they're two sizes too big or, you know, and the pats on the back. But, but I've almost noticed again, we're very uncomfortable around the idea of holiness or, you know, there's something special happening here. And it goes back to, again, that difficulty of mindset of just saying, let's let ourselves be drawn into something is really going on here. We really are worshiping a real God who is really holy. Um, and, and it's just something that even, even my opinions that I've thrown out, maybe you feel a hundred percent differently if you're listening, but at least we need to be thinking about the holiness of God and how that relates to our interactions. I think with a lot of this, we talk about it being make or break and in, in our relation to the culture. And we think, man, if we just downplay this stuff and, and make God one of us, you know, that th- that was the outrage. He gets us. But what you see is the opposite, is people going to the high church thing, going to orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Catholicism, the things that where they've got the really ornate uh, buildings and the guys in the funny hats and the robes and all that, because they want something different. Kind of like you're saying, we, we're not used to moments of, of holiness, different of like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping outside of the other world into a different world, you know, like the normal world into a different world. And, and so we really try and downplay that to make everybody comfortable. No, let's not do that. Let's go the other way and emphasize God's holiness that this is different. And this really blends into the second point. So I'm just going to bring them together is that we start living this out practically as not worldly Christians, not being like them. And I I think I, I wrote on this a month or two ago that I really think this is the biggest where you see churches dividing and, and churches are going one of two directions. And it's, this is the dividing line. There are churches that are telling the world we're just like you and there are churches that are telling the world we're not anything like you come be part of something better. And right. I uh, for shorthand on the outline, I put it as Andy Stanleyism versus Doug Wilsonism. Some people will know those names and know exactly what that means. Essentially, it's the uh, Christians, the churches that are just telling people, man, I know some of the Bible, it's really hard to to accept. And man, some of this is really weird. And so. We're just going to make it as comfortable for you as possible for you to come in, sit in a pew, enjoy yourself, not have to change, not be any different versus, hey, this is hard. Come be part of it. That's why you should want to be part of it is it's different. It's a change and and deny your worldly self and come into something new. Right. I I like that. You know, 
Titus started bringing it and um, Jack, you did as well. The lack of comfort that we have, that we have with holiness, it's almost like it's not just a, that we're not used to it, but that there's something that we almost feel awkward about it. And so we do in, in any moment that's somber, because the thing is worship is truly, it's an exposed state. We are, we're standing before God totally open and, or we ought to be right. We are, we are in the light. We're completely in the light and uh oh, lost Jack's video there. (laughs) We're completely in the light and we're completely, uh, you know, vulnerable and it's, it's intimate and there's, you know, there's a sense of being exposed and we just don't like that. We, we want to remain in this kind of um, hidden. I think that's part of it. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's, maybe there's something related to what happened with Adam and Eve going on there where we're, we're hiding behind a rock or we're, you know, we're, we're sowing some fig leaves onto ourselves and we don't want to come in because we know if I step into the presence of God in, in, you know, with complete openness and humility, then I'm either going to be exposed as a fraud or something like that. I, we have to get holy on, on this personal practical level, if we're going to do that. And, you know, what, one of the, I think the big area that needs to be focused in our churches, in the leadership, in the pulpit, is helping Christians develop a Christian mindset, a, a mind that is transformed, a mind that thinks like Christ, one that is thinking like the Spirit, having a truly Christian worldview. Because right now what we have is a hodgepodge of kind of piecemeal rules and this very narrow category of uh, of spiritual things that usually has to do with just a two hour assembly on Sunday. Outside of that, we don't really know how should I be thinking about my job? How should I be thinking about? So that's a huge part of it is recognizing we have to be exposed and and humble, but we also need to have a, a truly Christian worldview. Yeah. You know, you said Andy Stanley ism versus Doug Wilsonism. I think about the fact that I don't know for how many years, but, and I don't know what all times he comes on, but I know for years, Andy Stanley has like covered the, uh, the slot right after Saturday night live um, on TV. You know, you basically uh, you know, you, you have a preacher who he's coming on right after a show that's watched, you know, uh, by hundreds of thousands of people. I think a lot less now because probably for obvious reasons, but you have a preacher who's trying to basically follow maybe (laughs) at this point, one of the most, uh, socially politically perverted you know entertainment things that, that's going on that's going out to the mass uh, audience and he's trying to basically keep that audience in the first five minutes <laughs> if you're going to do that what are you gonna have to do you're gonna have to throw holiness and and any kind of difference of christianity and god out the window and just talk to people as if you're talking just like a motivational speaker uh like somebody that's you know wanting to help make their life better and so you know i i think like daniel saying there's an intimate connection between what happens in the worship the way we approach worship and our outside life because again it's it's constantly in my mind 
I think in the Church of Christ, we we think we've done Jesus a service by creating two boxes, and we say, here's our spiritual box, and here's our uh, secular world box, and we've put all the spiritual stuff in the spiritual box, and we've protected it from the secularity of the world, right? So we can do all this stuff in our secular life, and that has nothing to do with our Christian life. And what it creates is, like Daniel says, it's just a hodgepodge, weak worldview to where, again, we think, well, I can live like, you know, if there's no difference between you and 95% of your neighbors, except for two hours on Sunday, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And so many people in our churches look and live exactly like the standard suburban American. And you just look at it and go, surely this is not what God meant. Surely it's not just, you know what, be distinct, be a peculiar people. And that's that you don't have a piano on stage versus everybody else does. I mean, if that's going to be the totality of what makes us distinct, then we've missed it. You think there's a lot of Christians that would probably be comfortable saying, man, we are starting to look a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah and amen, brother. Amen, brother. Do you think Lot was watching the same TV shows as everybody in Sodom? Do you think he was going to the same place? Uh, you know, they didn't have TV. You know what I'm saying? That that he was living the same way as them? Of course not. He, I'm sure it says Righteous Lot was tormented day after day, looking around going, this is all awful. If he was living exactly like them, he wouldn't have stood out. There wouldn't have been anything different about him. He wouldn't have been saved. I mean, you remember Abraham negotiating. Lot was the guy. He was the guy yeah. there who was different, who stood out. And when God looks at America... Well, we watch the same TV shows as everybody else. We go to the same movies as everybody else. Our our churches have at the movies sermon series where we decorate. I just saw it was at Life Church decorated their whole building like Star Wars, not for vacation Bible school for their Sunday worship because we don't hold God as holy. So we don't act like he's holy. Then we in our personal lives, we don't live as holy. And so we want to bring that into church so we're not uncomfortable there. And like, it's just this snowball effect that is awful. Well, there's something, there is, there's something spiritual that happens within a major production. Like if it's, it's, it's been interesting watching America's Got Talent and shows that are similar to that and hearing these secular think, you know, these secular guys on stage, Simon Cowell, who, you know, he always, it's almost like he's that, that is his liturgy. That is his place of worship. And he'll sit there and he, he like, you know, the hair stands up on the back of his neck as he hears this awesome performance, this person with a beautiful voice or these people that put so much time into this production. And I think we love it because it's experiential and it's emotional and it, it, it speaks to something transcendent. And yet there's absolutely no standard there. So society is drawn to it because it speaks to kind of that inner stuff, but there's no, the God on the other end of it is just a couple of performers who themselves are living like vagabonds and they don't expect anything. And so you can carry on, you can get this sense of awe, which I think you sometimes see that in these, in these mega church productions, but it's really lacking. I mean, it's, it's like, it's just a weak facade. It's just, it's a smokescreen and there's something so much deeper that goes to the core. And what we need to bring back into the church is this idea that all of life is a kind of worship. And I know that we don't like saying that, but in Romans chapter 12, look, there's Paul says, present your bodies. I mean, this is at the end of this major theological treatise, 
Romans 1 to 11, that's the most profound exposition of the gospel that exists in the Bible. He says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Somebody's going to say, no, it's spiritual service. No, it's talking in the context of the Levitical rites of like, you know, the Levites would go in and they'd offer to God these things. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, that's your body. I mean, that's every day, every moment, every breath, every waking hour, my body is God's and God, how can I use it now for you? When you come into worship on Sunday with that mentality that you've had all week, it's a different, you're bringing something different than the person who's been watching TV and then shows up to say, Hey God, let's, let's, you know, do a couple songs. Yeah. I feel like life church definitely missed out if they're doing star Wars. I mean, I feel like you got to do the Barbenheimer worship service for this <laughs> Sunday. Right. I mean, <laughs> get Barbie with an atomic bomb behind her. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I've, I've been waiting to say that for about three minutes. So forgive me for you, bringing that back up. Um, but you, you know, I think what's interesting is that we, what we think, I mean, the, the, the virtue of our day is authenticity. People think, well, being authentic is the most important thing, you know, and that's why we hate ceremony. We hate uh, having to go to the courthouse and sign a marriage certificate. Man, love, they're just putting shackles on love. I mean, it should just be, you know, we hate that because we think it goes against authenticity. But in a weird way, I think what people want, and again, if someone thinks people want a Star Wars worship service, they want, you know, relevant, you know, pop culture references. What people really want from us, I think, is to be real. Okay. They want us to be real. And this is something that the, the fakeness shows through in the Star Wars service. And, and at times, I, I'll just be honest, in the ultra conservative service on a Sunday that acts as if we're living you know, in a total bubble away from the world, it's also fake. It's also not real. It's not speaking to any real issues that are going on in the world. And, and what I think you hit on earlier with, you know, the Simon Cowell and his liturgy of, of talent, you know, I think there's something that people, and we've talked about the people coming in post COVID that are looking for something. Our world is so clinical um, and naturalistic and dead that magic of any kind. And I don't mean magic as in pulling a rabbit out of the hat. I mean, the beauty of the universe is totally wow. downplayed and people are looking for that. And if we, as the church, when we look at, you know, the differences, what holiness is going to lead us to act differently. I think we have an opportunity to be, totally real with people because sometimes on YouTube, you see this guy walking down the sidewalk. He's just like a guy. And he's saying, you know, have you noticed how none of us are happy anymore? Have you noticed how we're all scrambling from here to there and there's no meaning in our life and we feel empty and dead on the inside. And have you noticed that you have a hard time sleeping at night because you just feel like you're and this gets millions of views from people saying this guy's speaking truth. Like I, I feel totally empty. And the reason that is, is because we're missing a component of, again, that magic of the world in our lives. And as, as we present a holy God to people, it doesn't have to be all, I mean, it is hellfire and brimstone to an extent, but it's also, look, the world is beautiful. Holiness is beautiful. Uh, right. Living unto God is beautiful. And I think, again, it does, and that's why I think the the Amish, the Mennonite mindset, the 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 cloister yourself away and have no interaction with the world mindset is so self defeating because it's not real. That's not the real world. The real world is 
we have a beautiful God. He's beautifully holy. And this way of living is going to get you closer to him. And I think that if we, if we fell into it, and I think that's what we're going to go into with the other ones that people don't want cotton candy foundational fluff that is going to, again, you know, it's going to please the, the people that have grown up in the church for 50 years that are just so excited to hear the next sermon on baptism for others. I think we have to be real first. And I think that holiness and being real with people would pay in dividends versus some of the mistakes that both ditches are falling into. For sure. Yeah. So here's where we create some cognitive dissonance because I, I think we're onto something that people really do want this thing that's different. They want, uh, like you said, they're not happy. They want to feel connected to something bigger than themselves, that that there is more than just this life. There's more than just what's here on earth and the material, the scientific and all that. And we can tell them there is, but here's the problem. When they do that, they've got to accept some things they don't want to accept. And that's these next few we're going to get to. We're going to start with firm gender teaching, that there are men and there are women and that they are created for different things. And, and somebody says, well, I want the, the holy, I want the God thing. I want to feel different. I want to feel like I'm stepping out of the world. I want all that, but I don't want this. Sorry, you don't get both. You have to give up the things that you like about the world to get the things you like about God. And, and this is that first one that churches really, as much as is possible, have, have gotten into this habit of going, okay, Let's, in fact, I've, I've written on this. I, I might have brought it up on the podcast before. The idea of complementarianism, which is the dominant view of uh, male-female relationships in uh, even in conservative Bible-believing churches, it's a sham. It was made up in the 80s to appease feminism that was already in the church. It was something that, that looking back, there was John Piper, Wayne Grudem got together and we had women entering, you know, the workforce, the military, politics, uh, you know, in, in numbers like never before, like it had been firmly established for decades at that point. They were not going to tell them, hey, actually, women are to be keepers at home. Women are not to rule society. Women are not like biblically. It's this. They came up with this compromised position that's left nobody happy. It's not working. It's backsliding in churches where they're starting to let women preach and do more and more things because it was never a firm line that they were drawing. Right. All in the service of trying to tell people you can have your worldliness and your Christianity. You can't. Right. And so this make or break point is, will we be firm on gender roles? Well, part. So this is this is hugely important when it comes to living out a holy life. You can't live out a holy life when your when your function is distorted or when the function has been you know reversed. When when a man is behaving um, you know weakly and um, you know he's he's not leading, or when a woman is behaving like the head of the household, there can't there's not there's not only not going to be holiness which I think is the original thing. I mean, it's right off the bat. There's not going to be holiness, but you go further down the line. It lends itself to, you're speaking to the lack of happiness and the lack of the thing that, that strikes me is you've got, we put, we peddled this feminist lie. Women, you're going to be happier if you go to work and if you don't have kids and if you climb the career ladder and if you, you know, get that trophy that, you know, the, the guy have, you break through the glass ceiling, all this kind of stuff, you're going to be happier that way. But there's, you know, there's a direct um, relationship between that movement and the, uh, you know, the height of the mental uh, health um, uh, uh, epidemic that we're having. How many women are on uh 
you know, some kind of antidepressant. Why is that? Aren't we aren't we supposed to be happier because we did this? I mean, that was the thing. You're going to be happy. Satan always promises. He promises, um, you know, pleasure. He brings only pain. And we're in the pain and we're trying to say, hey, the pain is because of church hurt. The pain is because of some other issue. It's like, no, the pain is because we've refused to be holy and submit to who God made us to be. Men be men, women be women, accept it and live it out. And there's something glorious in it. When You, you know, uh, I, I listened to this great little piece the other day was talking about you, you take a woman who's she's at home. She's in the kitchen, she's baking, and this, people are going to come over and say, you know, someone will, someone will look at it and they'll say, all you're doing is um, um, making food. What a, what a low, um, what a low life. You're, you're, you're not noticed by anybody. There's no accolade. There's no recognition. And he said, no, she's not making food. She's fostering hospitality. She's feeding souls. She's creating um, humans. She's like she's literally doing the most important function in the world. It's glorious and it's awesome. And women need to get back to that. You're, you're not happy in what you're doing. So let's do it God's way. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, I would almost call it breadcrumbing through history. And when I say breadcrumbing, I mean throwing out some kind of small reward uh, that basically placates you while meanwhile you're selling the farm under the table uh, or having it sold out from under you so look at feminism and what do you have you know oh women can vote women can own land women can work these are all things that that are again ingrained in us and just societally we go okay well this is just this is a universal good that this has happened but the hard part is if you look at the fruits of the feminism that have gotten us here and that's where it becomes the most clear to me the the clarity just opens up when you go oh my goodness what have we traded for this feminism you know what have we given away to get to this point and what makes it so difficult is you know I don't recall, you know, I, I was homeschooled most of my life. I went from kindergarten through second grade. But during that period, I don't remember being sat down and and instilled with these feminist virtues. Like I never had the class where I was like, okay, now we're going to sit down and teach you this rule book. And yet hearing these things, and, and I'm not talking about for, you know, for a man, the, the person at the pride parade and the, the woman who's, you know, the, the girl boss CEO, I'm saying for Christians in the pews, when they hear this stuff, it smacks them in the face and sounds so backward and countercultural because we have been, you know, catechized by Disney for five decades or six decades or however long we've been catechized by our entertainment, by our books, by all the talking points that we've heard. This, this whole story has been spun to where again, and we could get into the whole, you know, the CRT, the victim mindset that women are victims. You know, again, I'm, I don't think we need to exegete the most recent Barbie movie or whatever that came out. But again, this, this mindset that ultimately comes down to uh, we've got to subvert the order. And you know, it's amazing. It goes back to, Genesis chapter three, right? Um, you, in pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband. And again, there's the, the language there is, is, is a little bit weird and subversive, but it certainly seems to be saying you're always going to want to be stare, you know, stepping up on the ladder over the top of him. You're going to want, and, and again, you're not allowed to say this, but look at most any situation of authority. You will see this play out in almost every context in life, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in a church, whether it be in politics, it's wow. never enough for equality. It's always the first step towards subverting the, the order. Well, you yeah, brought and- up the Barbie thing and I I didn't see it, but I, there was a uh, 
quote going like the the monologue that was a central part of the movie. And I just wrote a whole article about this last week. So I'm going to keep this point brief. You can go read it if you want on the church reset Substack. Um, the her monologue that one of the lady characters was it's impossible to be a woman today. We've got all these standards. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to feed our family. We got to work. We got to do this. We got to. And it's like, you're right. You're absolutely right. This is impossible. It's not our fault. It's feminism's fault. It's the fact that you think you have to do all this because you're trying to be a man and a woman doesn't work. Yeah, of course, you're unhappy. Of course, this doesn't work. And this is the kind of thing that. Again, churches have been afraid to address this to really upset the women of the church because that's a lot of the times where the power center is and boy, they can get mad and stir up a hornet's nest. And so they won't say these things. And so we let people go on. No, it's not helping people by not telling them you were designed for this and it's better if you do. And as I said before, all the good things you want out of religion, you can't have if you're going to hang on to this. You are not going to get close to God while hanging on to the, your worldliness, while planting your foot in that camp. And then trying to drag closer to God. Well, if your foot's still there, you're stuck there. You've got to let it go. And and so this is the kind of thing that you start talking about and people get mad about. People don't entertain this. People really want, well, what about men? What about, yeah, they got stuff to do too. I mean, this is, there's a give and take of patriarchy is we need good, virtuous, honorable men. We absolutely do. Men have messed up a lot of things. Women have messed up a lot of things. The only way back in this is not to say, well, it's your fault because that's what Adam and Eve did. How did that work for us? Didn't work out real well to point and say, well, their fault, their fault. No, take your job and figure out what am I supposed to do here as a woman, as a man. God laid it out so plainly from the beginning and throughout scriptures. And we just see functionally it works when we do it. it it's a disaster when we don't. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how feminism said no, no gender distinctions. Women can do anything that men want to do. Women go do it. Go to the front lines climb the career ladder, leave your homes, leave your kids, give them to somebody else. Let's just do this. There's no difference here. And then when that happened, men abandoned their duties. Men, men abandoned their posts. Men left their roles that they were called to be living in by God. And you get, you know, then you get the, the women saying, look, masculinity is toxic. And it's like, no, masculinity isn't toxic. What's toxic is men abandoning their posts, men using using their masculinity outside of the domain that it's supposed to be. Men are supposed to be strong and provisional and courageous within a certain context, protecting their wives, pr protecting their children. And but when you get when when you remove the idea of gender distinctions, you just get women unhappy because they're out in the man's field and then men have left altogether. And there, there's kind of this toxic thing going on there. And again, it's just interesting to me that we're seeing like society will point out the flaws. They'll say, here's a problem. Here's a problem. Here's a problem. But they don't want to go to how to fix it. They just, like you said, they want to point the finger and pass the buck. Well. All right. So once you've got that established, what a man's supposed to be, what a woman's supposed to be, very closely related to that. And this is one I think, as I said before, I think people would expect to be on our list of make or break issues. Number four, clarity on sexuality. I mean, you know what a man is. We know what a woman is. So we can get past the transgender thing because of and everybody gets how absurd that is. But I think there's still a lot of stuff about sexuality that Christianity is getting wrong. And uh, not not that the Bible gets it wrong, but that the church has gotten wrong about how we address it and 
the tone we take towards it and this whole thing of, well, the church has been so mean to homosexuals. Well, uh, hold on. I don't know that we have. I, I think that is a that's accepting the world's framing on the thing. But we, we got to start with the unique damage of sexual sin and realizing that when we take a firm stand and say, here's let's say it, the Lord on this. That is the best thing that anybody will ever do to these people. Because we don't really believe in going back to the start. We don't believe in God's holiness, God's difference. We don't believe that being near to God is the best thing that you could do. And we don't believe that sin is a cancer that is eating you up from the inside. And that's what First Corinthians 6 talks about, that, you know, that you're sinning against your own body with these sexual sins. How, how devious, how disgusting, how bad it is. And Romans 1 confirms this. You know, this is so unnatural, these ways that people are going down and that if you can bring somebody out of that, that is the best thing that has ever been done for them. As painful as it is for them to hear, as offensive as a lot of them think that you're being, telling them these things that nobody else will tell them, everybody else is applauding them as they run headlong into hell, you would be the person who loves them more than anybody. Not hurting yeah, them, not hating them, loving them. The, cult, the cultural idea of love is is really the antithesis of the biblical idea of love. The cultural idea of love is don't offend, affirm whatever the person happens to be. We see that uh, breaking out in a number of ways in society, in therapy world, and um, in in just our our uh, understanding of morality. But in Romans twelve nine, this is striking to me. Paul says, "Let love be without hypocrisy," and it's followed by two participles. Uh, two participial phrases abhorring. So let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. The way that love is not hypocritical. In other words, the way that love is genuine through and through is when you hate what is evil. And the word he uses, there's only used once in the whole Bible, but it's like, it's the strongest kind of hatred that, that exists. It is a vehement abhorrence of something. You let love be without hypocrisy. It literally says, some versions say genuine. The word, it's like ano hypocritos. Um, it, it means literally without hypocrisy and then abhorring what is evil. That's the only way. That's the only way that a love is genuine is if you hate what is evil. So you look on your transgender neighbor and you look on your homosexual neighbor, the way you love them is by hating the thing that's destroying them and by calling them back to what is truly good. Yeah. I, you know, as we're talking about this, um, you know, you, you mentioned Jack, this, this accusation that the church has been mean to homosexuals and how that's kind of accepting a false framing. Uh, I, I will say, I think the church has done poorly on sex in, in both directions. I, I think we're bad at it. I think we're bad at talking about it. I don't, I don't think we've addressed it well. Uh, obviously in the negative sense, but also in the positive sense. We we are, are uh, and I, I want to say, I, I don't think um, that means that the church, we should be openly flagrant. And, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the word, you know, uh, I don't think we should be pushing the envelope every sermon. You know, a pastor so-and-so who has his bed set up in the middle of the auditorium and is bring, calls his wife down, you know, to make the point. Obviously it, it gets him very, very poor taste. But I think, again, it goes back to, uh, you know, with, with the idea of sex and sexual sin, one, we're afraid to talk about sex at all um, in, in any sense, positive or negative. And so, again, um, you know, number two, 
when I think about that fact, I go back to, as I was growing up, we can't necessarily call out these things. One, because we're afraid of offending those outside. Two, because we're just afraid of offending those inside the church. Well, old, you know, Grandma Ethel, if we talk about sex, she's going to get offended on this day. When in reality, we live in, in maybe one of the most oversexed societies in history. Now, again, um, the pornography addiction, I think we'll talk about in just a minute. Pornography is your sin. If you're a porn addict, it's your sin. You need to repent and get it fixed. If you are, you know, a, a same-sex attracted person, that is not holy. You know, those desires are not good. And yet, I, I, I don't want to use the word victims, but we have people that are hurting because of this. You know, they are hurt. It's hurting them. Uh, it's sending them on the path to hell. And I think the way that we've talked about sexual sin is as something far off. You know, I, I've literally heard sermons where preachers say pornography people, you know, these sickos in their mom's basement, these sickos that are looking at this stuff, dude, it's most of the men in your congregation. It's most of the people in your church. And I think that again, we have to strike that balance with sexual sin of yes, don't make the sin any less, but realizing that the it's infiltrated our ranks. It's all over the place inside the church. We can't give place to it. There's never a room to give place to it, but we have to realize it's probably the, the most prominent struggle that most Christians in our churches are having today. Um, and so we have to speak boldly about it, but we also have to realize, you know, and I'm the chief of sinners, you know, we, we have it here. It's not the out there thing. It's inside our ranks. Um, and I think we've done badly talking about it. We have. Yeah. And I I'm real big on that. We're more culturally influenced than we realize. We all think we're all just individuals choosing things, you know, making decisions. no, because somebody 50 years ago and that preacher that's talking about, oh, the sickos with their, I, in fact, I was at a preacher's meeting I've talked about before where one of the guys got up and just said, well, just tell these perverts to repent. Like, dude, come on, man. But here's the other thing is he didn't grow up in a time where every kid had access to every pornographic image ever produced in his pocket at all times. Yeah. Like if you don't understand that and the poll that it's going to be on a kid that culturally kids are pulled into that culturally, if a kid is depressed, and has a bad week at school, somebody's planting in their mind, well, it's probably because you're a girl. It's probably because you're actually a boy. It's probably because you're gay. It's probably because of the, you know, if, if you have a bad breakup with your your little middle school girlfriend, which you shouldn't have in the first place, parents, but, you know, that's neither here. Well, no, it's not here, there, or there, but it's just a different rabbit trail. But, you know, these kids that, that okay, you have a bad breakup. Well, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm gay. Nobody over the age of 30 had to deal with that. You have to realize what people are being subjected to. And the only way you can usefully fight against that kind of influence is to produce a counterculture that tells kids, no, that that's not thinkable. That's not the direction we're going. That's not how that is. When you have a bad day, it's because you had a bad day. It's not because you're gay or because you're you're trans. When, you know, you you hit that age and you start desiring sex. Sorry, your phone is not a, a place to relieve that outlet, because the other thing that ends up happening is. They get hooked on that. And then we have the the marriage rate statistic in the church that that matches exactly with the ones in the world of like, oh, well, people aren't getting married till 28. I'm sorry. They are not holding off completely. Most people decades into their sexual desire into you know, post puberty and, and all that. Where are they getting it? They're either fornicating or porn. 
Okay. And so because we don't have this, we like there's this cascading effect of all the bad things because we don't have a culture that says it's not good for you to be alone. So get married. You can't have sex outside of this. You're not all these other things. As you said, we, we don't have it because we don't talk about it. There, there has to be gatekeeping. So, you know, you talk about there's going to be a dad, there's going to be a dad who's there tell, like telling his kid, if they hear one of these lies, he's going to be there to address it. He's going to be there to expose it through Christian lens. But at the same time, there should be some protection from it. There should be gatekeeping. If your kid is hearing messages about maybe you're trans, maybe you're gay, maybe you're, you're a girl, or maybe you're a boy, I would say as a parent, maybe you should remove your kid from such environments. Why are we putting our kids who are as moldable as clay into a place where that's the kind of messaging that they're hearing? This is going to demand that we make some big changes, but there has to be gatekeeping if we love their souls. Bring them to a place where we can actually have some control over these environments and control over the things that they're listening to. For one, they shouldn't have a cell phone, like at all. And if they're still in the home, when they do get a cell phone, it needs to have a lot of parental controls. A dad's going to be there overseeing it as the patriarch of the family, as the priest for the family. And he's going to be watching and paying attention to this. But here's part of the problem. There's a lot of the dads that can't handle this because they're sorry. Go ahead. That's exactly where where I'm going. That's the other problem is dads need to repent because I think that that's a huge, you know, you talk about you're not going to go be a courageous warrior for Jesus Christ if you know that you yourself are living in darkness. And, and neither are you, as much as you would say you're, you love your kids, neither are you going to try and do that, that gatekeeping for them because you know this isn't sincere. This is hypocritical. I, I'm personally telling them and demanding things of them that I wouldn't do myself. So it it starts with dads repenting. If, if a father is living in sin, he does need to repent. He needs to change, come out of the, come out of the darkness, step into the light, and then lead family because, look, we're looking at eternal souls. Yeah. Like it, yeah. this, these are our kids. Where are they going to be for all eternity? What yeah. matters most that they be, that they be cool among their peers or, or that we protect them and raise them in the nourishment and admonition of the Lord and prepare them for where they're going to live for eternity. Yeah. I, I think, you know, we, we stand around wringing our hands sometimes and going like, how did this happen? How did we get to this point? I think culturally, and maybe this is this is just off the hip. You guys can agree or disagree. I think it's amazing that we go from the generation of boomers who seems in some ways are unable to commit anything wrong ever. Like they they don't make mistakes. Um, sliding right into the summer of love, the sexual revolution. What happened there? You have a generation of parents that grew up again with societal mores being totally shifted. Everything changed. They grew up again. You know, my parents grew up in, in an era where their parents could watch anything on TV, any movie. There was never a question. Oh, it's on. You can watch it. My parents grew up in a generation where their parents had no clue the things that were being put on TV and put into movies. And so you have a generation that came out of the, you know, the children of the sexual revolution that had no guidance that they didn't realize what they were being subverted into. They have our generation and they have all of these sexual skeletons in their closet that they're ashamed of, but they come from a generation that doesn't know how to confess its sins. Then they have these sexual sins and they have kids that they can't talk to about sex. Cause if I talk to sex to them about sex, that I'm going to have to reveal 
I made mistakes. I, I made, I, I had major issues. And as I move forward in my life, uh, I, you know, I, again, I'm the chief of sinners. I have sex, sexual skeletons in my closet. I hope that with my kids, I have the humility to say, Hey, here's what I did wrong. Here's how I messed up. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus's grace. And I'm telling you this so that you can avoid the same problems that I made. And I think generationally we we've come from a generation that, um, has been ashamed uh, of the things in their past. And I, I can empathize with that, but we can't let that shame keep us from pointing the next generation in the right direction. For sure. So that that's, that's authenticity with holiness and repentance undergirding it. So we, we spoke earlier about how this is, this is, a, you know, I think there's even an app that's called be real or something. Isn't there an app that's like yeah. that where you, yeah. you, you be real, you know, be, we want that. But yeah. and there's there's a truth in it, right? There's a truth in being real, but be real. And so a person who's in the darkness, if they're real about it, they're going to be they're actually going to be more at peace in the darkness than a person who's not being real about being in the darkness. So it's a step in the right direction. But God is calling us to be real and then move toward holiness. So as you're talking about, there does need to be that kind of vulnerable, you know, humble, um, open way of saying, look, I've sinned. I've messed up. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. Let me talk to you about this. And, but at the same time, it's coming from the standpoint of being repentant and having left that behind. And you now know, look, the promise of pleasure, it really wasn't there. You know, in the end, she was as bitter as wormwood or, you know, whatever uh, the proverb writer would say. So you getting at something, Titus, there. I'm going to jump over one of our points. We had a point about the family, but we've, we've kind of hit on that enough, uh, just the importance of children, but we, we got to some of that already. So for time's sake, and because I think you transitioned us well into it with this point of generational issues, as we're talking about make or break things, this will be the last one on our list. We've got to figure out how to get the generational thing right. I mean, it's so powerful that the end of the old testament i mean our old testament it wasn't the end of the hebrew old testament they arranged a little differently but malachi that you know when when john's going to come jesus is going to come it's going to return the hearts of the sons to the fathers and the fathers are the sons that's restoration that's change that's positivity that's things going in the right direction we don't have that right now and so this make or break thing is getting that right bringing the generations back together and there, that's that's two contango, you know, boomers and millennials are famously against each other, but you got Gen X in there. You got Gen Z coming along. You've got, you know, everybody looks at the people. And every time we talk about this, I get somebody going, well, it's always been that way. It's always been the gener maybe, but we're not in a, we're in a particularly bad point. There is because of the internet, it is such a generational divide, almost like never seen before of the way we live. Our lives has been changed so drastically We've got a lot more to overcome than the problem that's always been there, number one. Number two, this is something that bothers me. Everybody acknowledges, like I said before, we live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Times are so bad. Kids these days and, and the world, oh, it's just in decline. It's all falling apart. Who oversaw that? Who was in charge for that? Who has been in charge for the last 30, 40, 50 years? The people who are blaming the problems on today's youth, the people who raised today's youth and who raised the parents of today's youth, the people who, I mean, just voted all these things in, socially lived through all these things, oversaw this entire decline, and now want to turn and put the blame on. And as Titus said, 
it takes confession. It takes repentance. And when you see in the Bible, generationally, they get things right. It's people going, man, we messed up. What we did was wrong. That's not okay. Let's fix this. Let's own our mistakes and go back and do it. We don't have Christian parents owning their mistakes. We don't have them owning that, hey, we let our kids watch whatever they wanted and it didn't end well. They didn't own that, man, we were all feminists who put our kids in daycare and didn't, you know, uh, we, we got our home structure all wrong and, and that's wrong and don't do what we did. We don't have people saying that. And if things are going to change, that needs to happen. It, so, it, so it starts with confession. Like I, I one time heard this, he is a pretty big name um, minister who's, who was relaying something, a conversation he had with his son, where he said, son, what was, if I could have done anything differently, what would it have been? And the son said, well, I always had this idea that you were perfect, that you, you know, that you never did any wrong. And when I became a man, I realized that wasn't true. I wished that along the way you would have confessed some of your sin and that you would have been um, apologetic about it. And here's the thing. When you do that with your kids, when you like, I may be too harsh at times with my sons and get onto them in a way that I shouldn't, or, you know, maybe I, I react too quickly and I don't know the, the full story. I have to take them aside. And this is, I, I, I understand we're talking about big generations, but the generation between me and my son, which is the one that directly impacts me is just being honest enough to say, I reacted too quickly. I'm sorry, buddy. Can I give you a hug? I'm, I messed up. And being real. So he under he sees the standard, he sees the imperfection of his father, but there's also humility and repentance. So he knows, okay, when I did something wrong, I can confess this and it's not the end of the world. But when we sweep it under the rug and keep pretending like there was no problem, it it creates this big difference. My dad was once told by an elder in the church, don't ever apologize to your kids or tell them you did something wrong. It will destroy your authority. Oh, gosh, this is what we're dealing with. You're exactly right that that approach is what it would solve so much of this. And that's literally the opposite of the approach that's out there. Yeah, you have to you have to parent in such a way that at some point you again, you you step back and you you point to God to your kids and say, look, I'm in need of grace. OK, in this house, we nobody's perfect. We have a standard. We follow God's standard. But. I'm not perfect, you know, and, and again, it doesn't destroy your authority. You just funnel that respect straight up to the main source of authority and who they're really looking for. And so, you know, I, I was actually the one that that recommended this for the outline about this generational shift. I'm going to relate what happened to me personally. And if people relate, that's great. COVID happened. We we all remember that seems like a, a nightmare and a, and a you know, far off dream, but it happened not that long ago. COVID happened and everything got swept up into this COVID craze. And, and again, I, I was part of a congregation that for a time, the elders doing what they thought best, we we closed our doors. Um, and I'm not here to question their decision on that, you know, and, and what they did for our congregation. But during that period, um, you know, I was left as a Christian um, who who the primary source of my knowledge that I was a Christian was that I was going to church. You know, I went to church. I, I taught Bible classes. I led singing. That's how I knew I was a Christian. Once that was taken away from me, even for a couple of weeks, I had a major identity crisis. <laughs> I went, oh my goodness. You know, my Christianity is tied into this service and this building. And outside of it, with that taken away, I, I have no identifying mark. 
when that happened, I came out of COVID. I'm not saying I came out like jacked, like you know, and and uh, healthy like Jack did. Um, but but I I came out spiritually on fire. Like I'm not content to just keep this going and keeping the status quo because I looked at a world around me that seemed to be on fire. And the fact of the matter is we have a generational shift, not only in larger society, but in the church, we have an older generation that we're 10 to 20 years from them being, you know, um, working their way out of life. You know, I'm, I'm trying to say that as delicately as I can, but people die, generations shift. And, what we have, I'm afraid, is we have young people that are looking at a world on fire and going, I want my kids to be able to live and thrive under the lordship of Jesus and have a have a healthy, happy life. And we have a generation that went ahead of us going, um, see you guys, I'm on the way out. You know, we've talked about before, it doesn't matter if it all burns down. I'm on my way out. I had my good years. You know, do your best. We'll see you. And I think that's causing major friction because, again, some of what this looks like is is upending the status quo a little bit, revisiting some things and saying, hey, we need to make a change here. And everybody's so afraid that, well, you're saying Billy Bob Joe that died 20 years ago, you're saying that he wasn't right because he was part of this generation. Look, God's grace to Billy Bob Joe, I have no question. God's graceful. We all make mistakes. Our generation will make mistakes. But but I just see moving forward this thought again, post-COVID of, as this shift is happening, it has to be, it has to cut both ways. The younger generation has to have our hands out to say, we want to take on this leadership. We want to be involved. But the older generation, look, why are all of our action movie stars 80 years old? Why does Harrison Ford have to be the action movie hero of today? The same action movie heroes we've had for the last 50 years is because, again, the younger generation's unwillingness at times to take the leadership, but the older generation's unwillingness to let loose that grasp and bring us into this movement because we're the ones that are going to be living inside of this church. We're the ones that are going to be living in this world. We have to be allowed, and on the other hand, we must take responsibility and a hand in in this this body that we are going to be leading once this generation's gone. So so one of the one of the things is you're speaking that comes to mind that we need to remove that I think is exacerbating the issue is you got things like children's church. And you and you see this in some of the bigger churches of Christ where they literally separate out the kids. And so there's like an intentional separation between the generations. It's yeah. hey We've got our youth. You guys go over here and you do your thing. The big adults will do the big stuff. And that separation, that's creating a chasm right there. And we're we're literally doing it. So that's that's one thing. We need to bring the church back together. In, in, when you read in the Bible, the church was all there. Grandma, granddad, mom, dad, little babies. They were all there under one roof, worshiping God together. Yeah, it's a little bit messier. You got a little kid screaming, but you know what? That's a lot better than separating them out and pretending like worship is just totally this quiet space where everything's cookie cutter and perfect because it isn't. Sometimes, you know, worship is with a loud screaming kid right there and you're trying to worship God and you're addressing this next generation, teaching them at the same time. There's something beautiful and glorious about that as hard as it is. So that's one thing that we need to do. And another thing that I was thinking is uh, we were kind of mentioning beforehand our generation we don't have any skills. Like we know how to play video games. Well, I don't, but, but uh, you know, we, 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 <laughs> but we don't know how to do 
anything practical, right? We, we know how to do like a couple things with technology, but that's about it. The older generation knows all these things. And look, you become a young man, you get married, you don't have any money, you get a plumbing problem or something breaks in your house, who's going to fix it? You don't, I'll just say this. I realized very quickly how expensive the world was when I got married because it's like, oh, dang, I, I got to fix this. Well, what should be happening, I think, and one way to remedy the generational gap is older men taking the younger men to say, hey, you got a plumbing issue? Like the young man should be able to call up that that boomer and say, hey, I got a, I got a leaky faucet or, or whatever, and him come over and spend that time and teach him. And cre- you're creating a bond there, but it's also passing on something to that to that next generation. I think that's going to be a really valuable way to bring the generations back together. It is. It's yeah. about passing off and receiving. It's a, it's a baton, you know. And and if you're not willing to let go of the baton, you're going to keep running and burn out, and then you, you know, race is over. If you try and rip the baton out of somebody's hands, you don't. It's not going to go well either. And so there's very much give and take that that neither side has been good at at this to this point and daniel's exactly right keeping us separated to the degree that we have you know you've got your children's church children's classes youth group uh, uh college group singles young professionals young families um and then your senior citizens and then there's just kind of that like 30s 40s 50s group that kind of hangs out and yeah and so like generationally of course we don't get along we don't spend any time together we don't you know it's kind of you go over here you go over here and all of that has cut us off from you just read about people you know the founding fathers but just older documents and stuff they talk about posterity and inheritance and passing something on and being part of something you know a line of the generation that came before you and then well our predecessors, the older people today, have not viewed things that way. We've talked before about the whole, well, when I die, I'm taking it all with me. I think Titus made that point a minute ago. When you act that way, it makes perfect sense that the generation today would go, I'm not going to have kids. I'm the end of the line. That this is a lineage that literally goes back to the start of time that ends with me because it, it, it basically it all existed to produce me and let me watch Netflix and travel a little bit. That was the purpose of all of this reproduction, and I'm going to stop it right here and call it a day. It's insanity. But again, like I said, it only makes sense that people did that when the generation that came before them said, you don't matter. It's all about me. And so we've got to get out of the selfishness and realize the ones that came before us have something valuable that we need to learn from. Like Daniel said, call them up and learn from them. But if you're older, you've got to realize, pass something on. Don't just say, well, good luck, guys. You're on your own. Like, Think bigger beyond yourself. Well, and and one thing that I want to add to this that relates to the same point is, you know, I'm speaking right now directly to the older generation. If anybody in the older generation is listening, these younger persons, these younger guys, they want to know this stuff. They really do. Like that's, that is, it's part of what we're made for. We're made to be able to fix things. We're made to be able to create things. God put that within us and nobody's content or happy to not know how to do anything. It just, it's not, it's not really a fulfilling way of being a man. So there's, there's an inherent desire there, but you also see it working out practically. There's this YouTube uh, channel that's, I can't even remember the name of it, but it's, it's a, it's basically a guy who's trying to be a dad for anybody on YouTube. And he just shows basic things, how to rotate your tires, how to change your oil, 
um, a number of basic things like that. And he's, he's like, he has millions of followers of people, young people in the young generation that missed these things. And they're looking to him for wisdom and for help. And for, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing to me. He's not even real. He has no real connection with them. He's not their father. He doesn't know them at all. And yet they're going to him. And so that tells me that there is a need there. And I think that if uh, it'd be interesting to me, if churches would open up, you know, some kind of program, like a mentoring type program, or, you know, the older men are like, Hey, we're going to teach some younger men in our community. I wonder what would happen Would that. Would that create some, uh, maybe even some church growth? Because the desire is there. Yeah. I mean, like, again, we have to create a culture that can offer something opposite the other culture. And that's a great way to do it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as we kind of come to a close here, I want to like say something kind of neutral and scary. And then I want to say like a couple positive things because I feel like I've maybe been super negative this episode. Um, the 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 scary neutral thing is this. I, I've seen churches that are moving away in my congregation. We don't have a youth group, which I think is is very smart. Uh, we don't have a youth group. We don't have children's church. Uh, it's The elders have made a very concerted effort to make things family oriented, to have yes. everyone together. Uh, and they've done a great job with that. The scary thing about that is I, I would hope eventually more churches move away from that. We've got to move forward to something positive. Okay. We, we've had the, this negative. The biggest whiff ever was kids are leaving in, in college. So we've got to give them children's church and youth group. And we, and it's the biggest whiff, like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football ever. Didn't work. Totally a mistake. Everybody needs to move away from it. Now, as we get into talk of culture creation, this is the scary part. We're going to have to make maybe some changes, some, some, make some new, you know, some new ideas, some ways to bring ourselves together that people are going to be uncomfortable with. And that, that's something, again, as we look for our generation moving forward, creating a positive culture, not just moving away from the negative is going to be a big thing. And I think Jack would be happy to sell you a book soon uh, about how we're going to do that. But, but now, uh, you know, a couple positive things, if I can end on them. Number one. You know, through this episode, we've talked about generational issues and the gen- issue of the generations that come before. Um, my parents' generation, not perfect. They made mistakes. Uh, they weren't perfect parents, uh, much as our generation will. But the generation before, at least in speaking of my parents, were a generation that I think decided we want to be serious about this Christianity thing. We want to be serious about it and we want to work hard at it. That's what I saw in my mother and father. Um, and I think that, again, that is invaluable as our generation moves forward and tries to build on top of that. We're building on their foundation. No, they didn't get it all right, but we stand on the shoulders of giants. Even so we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us uh, that want things to be better. Uh, And even when that friction between their generation and ours comes, it's part of that growing process. And number two, the second positive thing I want to say is this for all my talk of COVID and coming out and, and feeling this friction between the generations. Um, I don't know what to call it besides the movement of the spirit, the work of the spirit that I think that across our country, we have pockets of people in our brotherhood that are looking around at each other like their eyes have been open going, we've got to do something. <laughs> what, what are we? Something's got to happen. There, there's a change that needs to happen. And I think that Jack, your church reset book speaks to that. I think the existence of this podcast speaks to that. Uh, 
there seems to be an awakening of sorts. I don't want to call it the third great awakening, but there, there's this awakening happening where people in the church want more. They want more opportunities to have Jesus as their Lord. They want more opportunities to build this culture. And so uh, we aren't of all people to be, to be most pitied in that, you know, oh, woe is me. We have these moments. These are make or break things that we have opportunities to move in the right direction on. And we can make a beautiful church culture all through God, all through the work of the spirit, not of ourselves. You know, if it's up to Jack, Daniel, and Titus to build the perfect blueprint of the church, then, you know, sorry, guys, it's already done. But with God on our side, with with the spirit, with the word, with all these things, we have every opportunity to succeed. God can do great things through us. Um, and we have to believe he's able to do that. Yeah. And that that's such a great point. That conversation needs to be being had between preachers from our generation and elders from the other generation, because I'm seeing as as you're talking, the majority of those who are feeling this big urgency to move and to do some make some to make some changes seems to me that it's in the younger generation. It's in those who are not nearing the end and and those that are going to have to deal with this for the remainder of their lives. And there has to be an open conversation. And I, I I do think that there are exceptions to this, but between the preachers and the elders to say, look, here's a problem that I see coming down the road that I know in 20 years, I'm going to have to be dealing with. What can we start doing about that now? And that conversation has to be being had between both groups. Um, not just, again, what we have to avoid is remaining on the trajectory we've always been on. We we can't say, well, we're just going to keep doing it the way it's always been done. There has to be the conversation and a willingness to say, okay, we're going to try something to do. And I, I do think COVID kind of opened us up to that. Yeah. It is a cultural sinking ship as we started off talking about with this episode and the people who are going to die before it totally sinks, they're okay writing it out. They're okay with the status quo. Those of us that Lord willing are going to be around and have to raise our families in the aftermath of a sunken ship, we're a little more motivated uh, to change things. I mean, that that's where this is coming from, but we would love the help from, from generations and the wisdom that they do have. And so it's imperative that we all work together. And I think these make or break issues we've covered are the ones that are going to determine how we swim out of the wreckage, how we move on to something better. How do we rebuild out of, out of what's falling apart around us culturally and so I'd be interested to hear, are there other make or break issues that people think these are the big ones? These are the things that, that need to change. Um, if you got that, drop it in the comments, YouTube, uh, or our Facebook page. Uh, let us know. This has been a fun season. Uh, Lord willing, we will be back, uh, I don't know, in a month or so. I think we talked about we're going to try and get a run in pre-Christmas for season three. And so I uh, want to thank everybody for listening. As always. Check out the Facebook page, share the posts, the quotes. It really helps spread the word and uh, or the reels. We're putting up those videos, those little short ones on Facebook. Those do really well. So if you'll you'll share those, that helps us out a bunch. And uh, of course, podcast ratings. I'm trying to remember everything else I need to say before we go dark, dark for a while. So Daniel, if we get 100 shares, I'm just putting this out here. I haven't even told my wife this. <laughs> I will grow a handlebar mustache. Oh, boy. Yeah. We can get 100 <laughs> shares on this. Come on, I was guys. So hoping the Psalms episode. I mean, I thought we were going to get it on that. I thought the reverse Mohawks were going to be enough, but you know, the little brown church in the in the veil uh, 
four part harmony. I know that, that I recording will just have to stay in the dark. It's, I know. Yeah, but say, I've got it sitting in my back pocket right here. Never, <laughs> never to be released. But no, it's been so fun. Thank you guys for inviting me on for this season. I've yeah. I've so enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a great time and I'm excited for uh, the road ahead. Yeah, I think everybody would agree. Ty, this has been a, a perfect uh, pickup where Jacob left off. And so we're looking forward to bringing him back uh, another season. That was just jokes last time about uh, the rotating third chair. So we will talk to you guys, Lord willing, in a couple of months.